Hello and welcome to this Pyro seminar where we're going to look at uh, progressivism and we're going to look at apocalypticism and um, I'm going to do basically a kind of critique of progressivism and uh, and see if we can find um, uh, we'll see if we can understand how change happens, how progress happens within a society and within individuals. So that's that's really what I want, what I want to explore. And by the way, if you've been following these seminars over the last couple of years, uh, the idea is that you know these will eventually start to uh, build up enough of a library of material that you can really start to feel comfortable with the ideas of parotheology and the philosophical and theological uh, sources that it derives from. Uh, so my hope is that for many of you who have been following my work for a while, uh, this stuff is starting to make sense. And now when you hear these seminars, you're able to uh, follow them you're able to perhaps even guess where I'm going to go with them. And then, you know, if you're at the super level, you're able to enter into a, a dialogue with them and a critique of them. So that's, that's my hope is that, as I say, you're, you're maybe, you know, you've watched enough of these and you've done enough of the reading, you've done some of the courses, and now it's not just an enigma. Now you feel more comfortable with the ideas. So that's level one is you become comfortable with the ideas. Level two is where you're able to converse with the ideas, you're able to share them with somebody else. That's always a good sign that you understand something, is if you say to your friend who doesn't know anything about the work, you talk to them about it and you're able to explain to them some of the central concepts. And then the next level up is where you're able to contribute to the dialogue, you're able to critique it, you're able to use it. Um, and that's kind of similar to what a degree, a master's and a PhD is. A degree is where you simply become proficient in something, in a subject. And then a master's is where you master it. And then a PhD is when you can contribute to the discourse. And, uh, you know, in a, in a way, that's what I'm trying to do. I was initially uh, writing books and doing one-off seminars. This technology now allows me to do um, a lot more and go a lot deeper and eventually what I want to do is start setting up courses in person and online for people who really want to like delve even deeper into this and set up communities um, uh, that are kind of based on some of these principles. So anyway that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, I don't know this is like a, we're in the 30s now in terms of how many seminars there are and this one is kind of going to try to apply some of the ideas that I've been exploring recently to the area of politics and to the area of change. So to begin with, I want to define progressivism. And before I do that, I'm going to turn off my air conditioner so that there's no hum in the background. Give me one second. I don't know if you're able to hear that or not, but uh, I thought I'd turn it off just in case. Oh, and now I've dropped all the loops. There we go. Let me see. Um, oh yeah, so I want to start with defining progressivism. So I guess at a very simple level, you know, you can look up Wikipedia and you know learn about kind of how it's connected with the Enlightenment and various early notions of social reform. But I just want to kind of uh, mention a couple of the central notions within progressivism. 
And one is that we are moving forward, we are progressing or we can progress towards uh, almost you could think of it like an Omega point, what Teilhard de Chardin, uh, the French mystic, uh, talks about this Omega point. So pro progressivism is about moving towards this, this point, this place, you know, this type of heaven, you know, even if it's a, uh, just a regulative ideal, we'll never get there. It's just what we kind of are moving towards. And then secondly, and related to that, uh, progressivism is about increasing universality, right? It's about uh, opening up the law to more people. It's about opening up justice and freedom to more people. It's about kind of that idea of everyone has access to the truth. There is not one, so in the religious terms, the notion of universalism is that everyone has access to the truth, right? There's not one small group that has it and then everybody else who doesn't. Everyone has that potential of encountering the truth. And then the idea is to kind of like, as you progress to have more and more people who have access to that. It's kind of similar in the sense of like society moves forward so that more and more people have access to basic rights where poverty begins to diminish, uh, where people um, have more access to justice, where people are equal under the law, et cetera, et cetera. So progressivism is a type of you know, movement of, of social reform that is constantly kind of aiming towards a kind of society of equity and freedom and uh, equality. Now, if you want to contrast progressivism, uh, one way to contrast it is with fundamentalist apocalypticism, right? So fundamentalist apocalypticism is, is kind of different. Uh, within that kind of world, there's a notion that um, there is an inherent death drive uh, within society, within the world, that is always going to ultimately move towards destruction. And therefore, any social reforms uh, fall into basically one of three buckets, right? They either make a small but re relatively insignificant change, they don't do anything at all, or they do something negative even though they intend to do something good. And in fundamentalist apocalypticism, basically this death drive or this sin, uh, this, this void within reality, within social, social life, will ultimately end the world. There's nothing you can do about it. It's ultimately, there's this deadlock that's gonna destroy everything. Um, and then there's gonna be a new world formed after that. So there's you know, progressivism, about social reform, gradually over time moving towards an omega point. And apocalypticism uh, in the religious sense is no, there's a, there's a fundamental deadlock in reality that cannot be overcome, that will eventually lead to the destruction of the world, uh, and then a supernatural reconfiguration of the world into kind of like a heavenly realm. Now, in true dialectical form, if you've been following my work, you know one of the, one of the tricks of dialectics is you discover that when you're uh, presented with two options like this, right? The usual option you take is the better one, right? or you try to kind of amalgamate the two in some way, uh, but dialectics generally moves towards the negative one, right? Dialectics sees the truth in the wrong choice. So dialectics is this constant uh, wrong choice for the right reasons. And I won't get into the, 
the reasons for that, but I'm just going to, uh, we're going to demonstrate it in a way. And, and I'm going to say, right, whenever you're presented with progressivism and apocalypticism, uh, choose apocalypticism. Right? There's something in apocalypticism that, that is deeply true. And I want to kind of get at that and look at it. And then we're going to see maybe how apocalypticism actually can help us understand how real change can occur. So to do that, I want to delve a little bit deeper into the critique that apocalypticists have of progressive politics and progressive social reform. And I was thinking about this this morning. I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a few examples. And all of these are difficult examples. So I'm going to give you about five, right? And uh, some of them are more difficult than others, but that's exactly why I want to give you them. I want, I want to give you these examples so that you can begin to feel what the critique of progressivism is. And, uh, uh, and then we're going to kind of see what we can do with that. So a very simple one to start with, which isn't very controversial, is um, Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, came to America, uh, I guess it was around the 1920s, don't quote me on that, and he became the founding father of public relations, uh, really the founding father of marketing and advertising. Uh, kind of 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 of, uh, of Western propaganda of co of corporate propaganda, right? And um, he's a you know fascinating character. He always he tried to get Freud to come over. Uh, Freud had not wanted nothing to do with that kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, would have been you know dead set against it, even though he could have made a fortune with it. Um, but uh, Edward Bernays seemed to be you know, pretty obsessed with his with his with his uncle and um, uh, tried to take some of those ideas and use them for corporations to sell products. And one of the things that he did, which is interesting, is he found a way to double the sales of, or significantly increase the sales of cigarettes. And how he did that was by making smoking a feminist issue, right? So I guess at the time, mostly it was just guys who smoked. And maybe it was seen as dirty and a lot of women didn't smoke. And so Edward Bernays, he's sitting there with tobacco companies and he's going, right, okay, well, how do we increase the number of smokers in the world? And so he directly connected it with, as I say, a feminist issue, strength and freedom, independence, etc., cetera, uh, and therefore, you know, dramatically increased smoking um, and, and made smoking among women very socially acceptable and not even just socially acceptable, something that was an act of protest, something that was an act of independence, uh, an expression of your in independence and your subjectivity. So it's a, it's a difficult one, right? Because in one sense you go, yeah, everyone should be free to smoke. Nobody should be shamed for smoking. Um, but at the other side, you're going, oh yeah, now more people are doing something unhealthy, right? It's like, okay, right. Um, that's a difficult nut to crack because you do want to say, oh no, you know, women shouldn't smoke, right? But you also go like, well, smoking's pro like, if you're you're moving in the right direction, but there's a weird kind of failure in the success. It's not that it's not that it's wrong to smoke, um, and everybody should be free to smoke, but weirdly it was caught up in something destructive it was actually being used in order to sell more tobacco products get more people addicted to cigarettes and you know causing the illnesses and causing deaths right so that's kind of one example of of social progress just in a very simple thing right that that doesn't there's an element to it that that's that's underneath 
that you kind of start to go, okay, that's progress, but, but also there's something, you know, something not quite working in it. And by the way, similar thing happened with alcohol uh, in the UK. I remember when there was stuff coming out about how men would get drunk more when they were out at weekends and would drink a lot more alcohol than women. And this was again seen as uh, kind of like an issue of men felt less inhibition to drink and they, it was more socially acceptable for them to get drunk and be loud and obnoxious, etc, etc. And so the answer was to encourage you know, women to also be, you know, drink as much as they want. And again, you go, yeah, that's great, fantastic, you know, but, but there's something, it's almost like you're moving, in the, you're moving in the wrong direction in the right way. <laughs> yeah. now, to, now, to get to more controversial ones, um, what else did I look at? Oh, yeah, uh, the workforce, right? Women in the workforce. Uh, now, women have always worked, right? Working class women have always been work, working and been exploited, just like working class men, right? But after the Second World War, there's a real problem because so many men had been killed um, or were like brutally wounded and weren't, weren't able to work. And so what in the UK could be done in, in, in light of this? And it was to encourage, of course, middle class women into the workplace. Again, this is great. Everybody should be able to work. Everybody should be able to work in factories, all of that. However, again, the underlying thing is, oh, Right, that's, that's great, that's a universalism, that's social reform, everyone has the right to work in the factories. And then at the same time going, okay, but there's something like, a, there's something about the direction that, that it's going that, that feels weird as well, right? And that's difficult to talk about. Again, these are the elements that uh, kind of a religious apocalypticist kind of begins to feel. Or, you know, to take even more contemporary examples, you have... Um, what was interesting is gay marriage, right? So there was a big push for people who, to be able to be married who are gay, fantastic. Um, but I remember being at a conference once and this guy, theologian, stood up and in the middle of this conversation about um, theology and marriage and whatever, and it was full of progressives, he stood up and he said, well, you know, you're not missing, you're, you're kind of missing the point here. He says, like, we're inviting people who are gay, who have been excluded from this uh, institution, we're including them into this institution of marriage. But he says, but the institution of marriage is in crisis. He says monogamy is in crisis today. And he said, like, communities that have been excluded from that have potentially found ways of doing relationships that are healthier and better than the ones that we understand. So it's not just a question of welcoming them into this institution so that they can be as unhappy as everybody else, right? It's going like, how can we learn from the excluded group how to rethink relationships? I mean, it's not, not in the sense of necessarily going monogamy is bad or marriage is bad, but, but to rethink things like, well, what age do people get married? What age do people have kids? Um, you know, those kind of questions, all of this is, is up for grabs because people live longer. Um, people can have children later. You know, there's lots of issues that uh, need to be addressed. And his point was simply, you know, listening to the outsider might realize, might help us understand that what we're inviting people into is not necessarily that great, right? And then, of course, a very recent example of this is with the army. Uh, and LGBT uh, plus uh, and people who are now being brought into the army. It was interesting that within the liberal and progressive community, there was a, a real celebration of this. Um, and again, of course, 
it's understandable. You go like, okay, you should be, if you're trans, you should be able to enter the army like anybody else. But again, it's like, oh my goodness, it was interesting that progressives became very pro the military whenever uh, you'd think that that was not usually the case. And, uh, you know, maybe the answer is actually to let less and less people into the military, right? Um, in fact, I know someone who's very high up in the British military and, and a friend of mine was talking to him and I, they were talking about uh, kind of women in the military. And he was a very, very high up military guy. And when, it, when the discussion was happening, my friend, she was asking, she said, well, is this a change because of like social dynamics and uh, within contemporary society? And he was like, well, no, not really. He said, the, well, the issue, he says, is that less and less people are enrolling to the military. And so we are opening the doors to more people because, you know, you need more people. So again, although it can be seen as social reform, uh, there is behind it a very cynical reason in, in many ways, which is, you know, get more people in. Now, all of these examples are kind of examples of which it's not, it's not easy to say. It's not it's right or wrong. Of course, it's right that people should be able to get married right whoever wants to get married right of course it should be right that people can smoke or drink or anything like that right but there's also this sense of oh yeah but um you know we're maybe inviting more and more people into destructive institutions right whether it's the you know the institution of smokers right who <laughs> outside the the workplace right you're inviting more and more people into that or you're inviting more people into the military or you're inviting more people into monogamy or whatever in marriage, right? The, the, quest, the larger question might be, oh yes, but is there something about those institutions themselves that are inherently destructive? Um, and that's kind of the death drive. That's the kind of notion that I see this. I was at a pride parade recently and it was in West Hollywood and all of the shops all have the rainbow flag in them which is great, but of course it's great. It's like, because that's, a, you know, you want to sell to as many people as you can. So, you know, you kind of, you put up your, your rainbow flag, you say, you're welcome here. And of course you're welcome here because then you can spend money in the, in the shop, right? So this, this question, of the, I, I want to call this the cunning of the devil, right? Because uh, Hegel has this notion called the cunning of reason. And the cunning of reason basically means uh, that you are maybe acting purely in your own self-interest, right, in life, and you're just looking after you selfishly, you want the best for yourself. But then, weirdly, everybody's acting in their own self-interest and all that, but, but through all of that self-interest, uh, positive things happen for everybody else. And kind of the idea is that the cunning of reason is that reason flows, it continues to flow and move forward, uh, even with unreasonable people. Uh, an easier way to understand is probably Adam Smith's The Invisible Hand of the Market. Uh, for Smith, the invisible hand of the market is partly this notion that you, know, you selfishly just want to get rich. So you develop a widget and you just develop the widget to get rich, but perhaps that widget saves people's lives. It's a widget that's actually very, very useful and very good and enriches people's lives or is a piece of medical technology that extends people's lives, whatever it is, right? The cunning of the invisible hand of the market is all these people who are acting selfishly can produce things that are useful for everybody. So the cunning of reason um, uh, is this like, it's behind your back. You don't realize it's happening. Um, 
uh, and then within capitalism, the invisible hand of the market is that in a sense you're acting for your self-interest, but it's increasing the capital in general. Uh, the cunning of the devil is like you want to do some sort of social reform and you're doing something very, very good, but there's, some, there's a dimension of the devil at work, right? Just getting more and more people smoking, more and more people into factories, more and more people into the military, right? So it's, it's uh, no matter how, how much good you do, something damaging results. And that's a really interesting insight. Um, and I guess again, like this morning for this seminar, I was just thinking about examples and those were like five that came into mind, but increase, I just can th you could probably think of another five or 10 without any trouble at all. Um, and it's even with things like, uh, you know, making changes within the, within tax, right? You can change it. You can change a tax issue for the good, but because it's such a complicated issue, it can it can generate problems that you cannot foresee, that you could not have seen, right? Um, and this is a very conservative um, suspicion that, that often you try to do something that's good and you'll end up doing something even worse. So with it, for, for a conservative person, just even in a, a, a personality conservative person, someone who's just naturally quite conservative, they will be suspicious of making changes. They'll more look back and go, right, okay, there's that was better before this, you know, right? Um, but it's also actually on the left, there is a version that's very different, and I think a better version, which is, um, oh, how was that? How did I describe it? Um, oh, yeah, I don't know, I'll have to come back to that. I don't know, I did think of the leftist version of this notion of, oh yeah, well this, exactly what I'm saying actually is, is that, that there's a there's a there's an idea in the left that if if you're doing something good and you're doing something to kind of like help more people shop or more people engage in civil society, what you can end up doing is actually make the the um, the negative the violent side of that system more invisible. You basically put a smiley face on it. So by kind of like you know, ethical consumerism or something like that, where if you buy a certain product, they give something to charity, right? So you're buying the product and something's being given to charity. That can, potentially for someone on the left, that can hide the violence of this consumerist system itself. Like how this was made, this product was made, where it was made, the environmental problems that arise from the making of that product and then another product which is then given to someone else and they're potentially given to people who are being damaged precisely by the creation of these products, right, in general, right? So, but, but by having this, you know, buy one, get one given to the poor, then what you've done is you're actually continuing a system of oppression by covering over the violent dimension of it, right? So that's a, that's a, and that's kind of what I'm talking about here is that there's a certain sense in which we can try to, I mean, I suppose the, the saying is you can win the battle and lose the war, right? And that's what we're talking about here is there's lots of battles and the problem isn't the battle. The problem is whether the battles are helping us uh, avoid uh, winning the war, right? Um, okay, so I hope that that kind of is clear that, and I'm talking about, I'm just talking about religious apocalypticists, whether or not they can express this, their concern is that there is this fundamental antagonism in society and in the world 
anything we do to try to fix it, to try to make it better, yes, might make things a little bit better, or doesn't do anything at all, or does something bad, but the cunning of the devil, right? The cunning of this thing is that eventually it's all gonna blow up, it's all gonna go wrong. Uh, and the only answer is, is that in the next life, a new world is gonna be created, a new earth is gonna be formed, a new heaven, and that will be uh, similar to the Omega point of progressivism. So in a way, they both join together in that notion. Whereas the progressive thinks that small changes, small social reforms, gradually over time, generate a better and a better society. Okay, so what do we do with apocalypticism then? And what do we do with this, um, the, 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 the fascination with destruction that is within apocalypticism? Oh, by the way, this is the question for religious people. The question has always been, is Jesus a progressive or an apocalypticist, right? And um, so progressives, when they read Jesus, they see in Jesus a social reformer who is gradually moving towards the betterment of society. Um, and then the apocalypticists see Jesus as a figure who is saying, kind of like, no, the world is going to end, right? Uh, let's be nice to people and, you know, let's, let's look after each other. But ultimately, we've got to set up a little community um, and everything's going to pot. And I'd be honest with you, like, I think the apocalypticists are closer to the truth. Um, so it's Schweitzer was one of the most famous theologians for showing that Jesus was an apocalyptic thinker. In other words, a thinker of the end of the world and the beginning of a new world. And then someone like Thomas Altizer, who gave his entire life to exploring the apocalyptic dimension of the Bible and of Christ. So again, you know, this is why I'm going like, it's funny to me, whichever you are, you know, a progressive or, or apocalypticist, you'll generally see Jesus as that. Uh, but it's, I think it is quite hard to see Jesus as, um, as anything but a type of apocalyptic thinker. Um, but I think this is a good thing. So what I want to do is I want to, basically my critique of religious apocalypticism is it's not apocalyptic enough. It doesn't go far enough. And by that, what I mean is the religious apocalyptic thinker does believe that worlds come to an end, right? But then they fantasize a new world without antagonism, without the death drive, without the deadlock, right? On the other side of the apocalypse, which means the destruction of everything and a new world that we cannot imagine. Like on the other side of the apocalypse, there is this unimaginable world of peace and prosperity. Um, and that means they're giving themselves over to this notion of a non-antagonistic dimension of reality. What I want to argue is that, um, and I've, I've, I've looked at this in some of the other courses, the tyranny of oneness really looks at this, but that, that actually, um, Apocalypses happen. There's lots of apocalypses. By actually, there's apocalypses have happened on the earth in terms of like vast destructive events that then create something radically new. But even in our social history, an apocalyptic event is an event in which a society is reconfigured dramatically in its economic, cultural, and political dimensions, and something new arises, fundamentally different. So within Marxism, these are called modes of production. The world goes through different modes of production. The modes of production include slavery, the Asianic mode of production, the feudalist mode of production, the capitalist mode of production, and then two that 
haven't happened, the socialist mode of production and the communist mode of production, right? So this notion is that there are these, I, I forget what you call it in biology or geography, but there are these cataclysmic events that happen. And in the aftermath of those cataclysmic events, everything has changed. And so one of them, of course, is the death of the, the dinosaurs, if it was a meteorite or whatever, right? That was a cataclysmic event, an apocalyptic event. But it didn't mean the end of the world. It meant the end of a world, right? Um, so within, within the work of Hegel, uh, you have this notion that, that every, every epoch has violence and contradiction within it, right? And every epoch works towards getting rid of that, right? Doing something with it, right? So, and there's quantitative change and there's qualitative change. So quantitative change is within the given epoch, they try to address the problems, they make changes, they make life better. But the idea is that eventually the epoch you will face problems that cannot be changed by merely quantitatively changing things, right? You can't do it. So for example, today, potentially global, uh, the cl uh, climate change is an issue that cannot be solved within the current mode of production. Potentially. Potentially, it's not that if we, um, you, know, uh, you know, make some small changes, things will get better. Potentially, it is a problem that's been generated within a certain a political and economic system but cannot be answered by that political and economic system. So the notion is the move from slavery to feudalism, for example, is a movement of the, the antagonisms and the violence of slavery could not be sustained. Either it was going to destroy the, wor the whole world, everybody, or um, uh, it was going to have to change. And it changed into feudalism. But then the contradictions of feudalism couldn't keep going because either they would destroy everything or they would need to change. And so feudalism gave way to capitalism. And then capitalism's doing its thing but potentially generates contradictions within it that cannot be addressed by it, that potentially will lead to the destruction of everything. And therefore, there has to be a qualitative change. Right? So the, the quantitative and the qualitative are, are in, I think, a useful way of understanding the difference. So. Within a type of radical apocalyptic thinking, which I think is in the tradition of Jesus, is that, that oh, and by the way, okay, think about it in relation to um, a TV series like Lost, right? Lost is very good at this. Lost, um, it, it, every season basically gave you a type of mystery, and then the mystery was answered. But the mystery was answered by situating the mystery within an even bigger mystery, right? And so every season that you're going through Lost, you're getting answers, but you're getting answers not by moving away from the paradox, but rather the paradox is getting deeper. It's getting more intractable. And that's the Hegelian notion of progress, which is different from progressivism. So progressivism is you're doing social reform gradually over time, moving towards the omega point. Within apocalyptic thinking, what you're doing is you can't imagine, because with progressivism, then you have this notion of kind of where you're going. You can see the arc and you can see what's the right side of history. So you'll, you'll see this phrase, the right side of history, that's often used in progressivism. And you can say the right side of history because you kind of know where it's going. You know where, where the next step is. Within apocalyptic thinking, you don't. You don't know what the future is. 
and any future that you imagine is just going to be an idealized reflection of the epoch that you're in. So basically every, every seer of the present, every person who thinks, every futurologist or whatever who's thinking about the future, basically what they're doing is they're, they're doing what that cartoon show, was it called, The Jetsons did. The Jetsons, I think, was a cartoon from the 1950s about this futuristic family uh, who lived, I don't know, on the moon or something, and they had their, their spacecraft and they had all this great technology. But the funny thing about the cartoon was it was still in 1950s values. It was all the values of the age, but with all this new technology to make life better. Right? So that's kind of like what futurologists do. That's one of the kind of Marxist or Hegelian critiques of progressivism is that you don't know what the next, the next mode of production, the next uh, world is going to look like. So what do you do? Well, the only thing you can do is reveal the violence and the contradictions of the world that you're presently in. That you try to not just reveal the contingent contradictions, you try to reveal the central contradiction of the age, the central issue, the not that has the potential of destroying everything if it's not solved. And as you really bring that to the surface and show it, so you don't put a smiley face on things, you don't try to improve things a little bit, but you do less and you try to help people, but at the same time, you're trying to show that all of that will ultimately be pointless if something radical doesn't change. So someone like, uh, is that guy uh, Berrigan, who was a Catholic worker, uh, I think he, he said, I think it was him, who said, like, uh, I pull people out of the river and they call me a saint. Uh, I ask who throws them into the river and they call me a communist, right? And so his, again, kind of he's saying, like, you give blankets to the homeless and you're a saint, but you ask why the homeless exist. Like, why are there so, so many homeless people in the West Coast of America, for example, in San Francisco and Los Angeles? And you begin to really try to work with why. And then you start to get into trouble because you get into questioning the very setup of our system. Um, so it's all very good to, to give blankets to somebody. But we have to ask the bigger question of what system do we create that allows for this, right? What is the kind of the disavowed violence of our system that's creating this problem to such an extent? Yeah, there may always be homeless people. There may always be people who are mentally ill. There may always be people who commit crime. There'll always be, uh, you know, lots of issues that, that you can't get rid of, right? That is part of being human, right? Um, but you can, there's a difference between, you know, a small uh, set of people who are homeless because potentially they're choosing that lifestyle or because, um, uh, you know, for, I don't know, for whatever reasons, right? There's always, you'll always have to work it out. You'll always have to help people. But it's different between that kind of like contingent small thing and the idea that we generate millions, hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless. Um, and uh, it's going, okay, we have to work out that problem. So within this type of apocalypticism, what happens is every epoch, all it does is it raises the antagonisms and the deadlocks of the age to the surface so that you see the violence of the system. And then you get into dialogue with others. You begin to work out what, what you can do about that without knowing where it's going to end up. And that's conflict. When you enter into a conflictual dialogue where you literally go, I don't know what we're going to do about this, but let's sit down and let's try and work this out. And we have to work it out 
because it is a threat that cuts across every social class. That's an important thing, with, even within the slave master uh, world and the feudalist world, it gets to a certain point where the violence and the destructiveness is so powerful that it's not going to destroy just the people who are oppressed. It's also going to destroy the people who are oppressing. It doesn't just destroy the powerless, it also destroys, will destroy the powerful. Um, an example of this, I've been watching The Expanse recently, and um, it's interesting because they're basically it's about class warfare in a way. Mars, uh, Earth, and the Belters, the people who live mostly in the, in the asteroid belt, um, are all kind of in a conflictual relationship. Uh, Earth is, is, the leaders of Earth are pretty aristocratic, Mars are pretty militaristic, the Belters are kind of proletariat who are doing all of the work. And these conflicts are there, but then there is a, a, there is a thing called the proto-molecule, which is something that threatens them all. Right? It cuts across the conflict between the three groups and it threatens to destroy the entire solar system. Right? So that's kind of what we're talking about is there is class conflict and there's conflict among groups within society. But what the apocalyptic thinker is trying to do is trying to show what is it that's cutting across all of those conflicts that threatens to destroy everything. Bring it to the surface so that change can happen. So I want to use an example of what I'm talking about. Um, and it's an example from Northern Ireland, right, where I'm from. Because Northern Ireland, I find it fascinating. Northern Ireland has one of the most, or it is, has the most successful peace process in the modern world, right? Much more successful than what you've seen in South Africa. Um, we had a 30-year war called the Troubles, a conflict. And uh, then in 1998, we had a peace process where we signed a peace accord called the Good Friday Agreement. And in the aftermath of that, uh, all, of, all of the paramilitary groups disarmed and we disbanded our police force and created a new police force. And Northern Ireland has this weird special status now where if you're born in Northern Ireland, you're, you can have dual citizenship, Irish and British. Uh, you, there's no hard border between the rest of Ireland and the north of Ireland. Uh, you can go, come and go. Uh, so we weirdly are kind of neither part, completely part of Ireland or completely not a part of it. And we're part of the UK and yet we're separate. So we've got our own parliamentary system. So it's, it's a really interesting compromise formation. Um, but what happened is the violence was getting so bad over 30 years that it just threatened to destroy everything, right? It was affecting everybody's lives. Everybody was being negatively impacted. And eventually it got so bad that everybody, all the main parties, the main uh, paramilitary groups, the IRA, the UDA, UVF, and the main uh, governmental bodies, uh, you know, politi the political groups within Northern Ireland, the DUP, Sinn Féin, SDLP, uh, PUP, and the British government and the Irish government all came together and said, we have to figure this out. And America was involved as well. It was like, you know, Clinton, you know, was an important part of this. And there was a massive sit down. There was a, p a peace agreement and the paramilitaries had a ceasefire. And we created the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement is this fascinating compromise. It was an apocalypse, right? It was either going to destroy us all or we had to figure out a way forward. And we didn't know what it would look like. And it ended up being very dramatic. And it created Northern Ireland, which is still, you know, it's, you know, it's nothing that's perfect, right? 
But the peace process is held, and Northern Ireland has really gone, got, you know, become a very strong place. It's a beautiful place. Um, and it found a way to, like, not just make small changes, but to radically rethink the status of Northern Ireland, to radically rethink it in a way that everybody accepted. And in fact, that now we're facing this potentially again, where Northern Ireland will become another great example of a weird um, uh, place of a, a compromise, something very, very different. Because with Brexit, Northern Ireland could become a special status place where we're part of the, the EU and we're part of the UK, right? Just as we're part of Ireland and we're part of Britain. So Northern Ireland continues to be this fascinating place of uh, the bringing together of contradictions. And the difference between progressivism and apocalypticism in this is progressivism is seeing progress into the future. Apocalypticism just sees the contradiction and the violence, just brings it to the surface and attempts to allow it to speak and to generate a new possibility. But the apocalypticists, when they look back in history, they see progress. So progress is retroactively seen. Every time the new world arises, then you can look back and you can retroactively perceive progress. You don't see it in the future. You always, it's always happening behind your back. So if you survive the apocalypse, you look back and you go, oh, this had to arise out of that in order for us to continue to develop. Now, um, so yeah, so I hope, hope that's kind of clear as well, is that both have weirdly a sense of progress built in, but one is forward, one is backward. And that's why Kierkegaard said, um, life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. Right? You're moving forward, uh, these events occur, very rarely, these apocalyptic events, um, and, but when they occur, they create a world that you could not imagine. And you shouldn't try to imagine it, because when you try to imagine it, I say you just imagine an, an idealized version of your present values. Your dreams are idealized reflections of your current values. So the idea is how to dream new dreams. And you dream new dreams by bringing to the surface the contradictions that are within you. Um, but then you open yourself up to the possibility of a, a post-apocalyptic world, a new world, which will not be freed from its own contradictions. It's just like Lost, the TV series, where one contradiction is answered by being part of a bigger, more intractable one. This movement continues to happen. Now, you kind of go, okay, what does this look like? It's all very abstract. And what does progress, or what does a good society look like? Well, one area in which we've done this, and there's lots of areas, the sciences, there's lots of examples of it, and I've talked about that in other places. Um, but one area is democracy. Democracy is in the realm of politics, a type of bringing together the, in, the antagonisms and the deadlocks and the contradictions of a society and making it work, right? So democracy is what, once you hit democracy, you've, you've passed over an important threshold, right? You've got to a point at which now you're not trying to overcome the antagonism, you're, you're letting it work for you, right? It's now working for you in some sort of way. So the idea is how do we, in various fields of life, get to the point at which this process of bringing the contradictions to the surface and wrestling with them and allowing something new to arise out of that, you know, we get into the process where this is just what we do and democracy is an example of, of that. Even when democracy gives us results that we despise, there's still something about it 
that is better than the alternative, right? Which is what Winston Churchill said about democracy being so terrible, it's just better than, than the other options. Um, this is of course similar to psychoanalysis where you, it's like, and I call this grace, the theology calls it grace, where it's not that you have to do anything, make progress. You simply have to bring all of the truth that you've repressed up to the surface. You see it, you see the truth of your contradictions and your internal fights. You're not at oneness with yourself. And in bringing it to the surface, that very act is transformative. And in the Bible, you have that verse, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, right? You come to know the truth, your truth of, as an individual or the truth of the society. And as that truth becomes known, as it comes into the light of day, it begins to bring freedom and change and you can find a way to move forward. So weirdly, this act of not doing anything, but simply bringing to light the antagonism of an age, and that's very difficult to do. I mean, and as individuals, it's difficult. That's why you need analysis. And as a society, it's very difficult. That's why you need you know, strong theorists. But as you, as you begin to bring that to the surface where people can see it, that very act is itself a type of transformative act. Just like in Northern Ireland, when everybody was able to face the contradictions and realize that small changes were not gonna work, but we all had to sit down and fight it out in, through politics, we were able to come up with this Good Friday Agreement. And uh, the fact it's called the Good Friday Agreement is interesting because it obviously has this, um, religious dimension, it was signed on Good Friday. And on Good Friday, that's where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God experiences the contradiction within God, right? God confronts the antagonism within God, and that's what leads to salvation, right? So in a similar way, Good Friday Agreement is we acknowledge the antagonism of this Northern Irish society and the violence and the war, the war and the bloodshed. And by acknowledging that, we find salvation in a political sense, we find a way forward as a, as a, as a society. And that's why I like to do my events in Belfast because it is an example at a city-wide level of what I'm talking about in, in my work. Um, okay, let me see. So, oh, I wanna say this then is right. This is an ongoing thing and, and the, maybe the next big apocalyptic event for society is is it could be um it could be how do you, how do we have a type of democracy within the workplace right how do we help people to be less uh, alienated from their work um, by having more involvement in who runs the business and how the money is used right that that's a fundamental change so that that's that's definitely something that could be you know a major change in what's called the mode of production um, but uh, oh and uh, here's an example by the way of how you deepen the contradiction. So in progressivism, you're getting rid of the contradictions by moving forward. In, in apocalypticism, you are moving deeper and deeper into antagonisms and contradictions. So take an example of someone at work, right? You're, you're working, you've got a terrible boss and the terrible boss won't let you have the holidays you want, let you take the time off that you need, right? So that's an antagonism in your life. But then imagine that the boss is changed for someone who's very kind, someone who's very good. Well, that just leads to a bigger contradiction, which is, well, now you're faced with the fact that you're in a job where you want holidays and time off because you don't like your job, right? So now you're more confronted with something even deeper, which is, I don't really like my work, right? Um, uh, and then as you maybe move jobs and you move into another job, 
then that is into an even bigger contradiction because now you're going, oh, it wasn't just my last job that I hated. I hate jobs. <laughs> I hate work. I'm ill and my whole work vibe is alienated. Um, and then that can lead to uh, the next stage where you find a job, maybe where you start to do something that you truly value, that you truly love, that, that where you make money from it, right? You're directly involved in the, in the creation of a product, in the giving it out, et cetera, et cetera. And then you hit a fundamental contradiction, which is, well, even that's difficult, right? But then the trick is you move to a different point. At this point, you go, oh yeah, having a job that I love is still antagonistic, it's still difficult because I still want to sit around and relax and not do anything, right? I still want to read books and sit by the ocean. But you realize that if you just had that, that would be even worse. So therefore you discover a way of reconciling the fact of having work that you love, but realizing that work is tough, but also realizing that the toughness is what makes it good. Um, it can't has a little story that I adapted and made into a parable about a bird that a dove that would look into the sky and watch all the, her other friends flying, but she would never fly herself. And um, eventually one of her friends says like, why do you never fly? And she says, well, it's because I'm imagining how high I could fly and how fast if only the wind didn't exist with all its resistances and pulls. Because the little dove was looking at how this, this air was causing resistance to her friends. They couldn't fly as high as they would want. They couldn't fly as fast as they would want. They're exhausted when they land, right? But she didn't realize that it was the wind with all of its resistances and pulls that allowed the birds to fly in the first place. So that's the realization where the, where the things come together. At first you're going, if only I had a better boss, I'd be happier with my work, right? Then you get the better boss, you go, no, I don't like my work. So that's a bigger contradiction. And then the next one is like, I don't like work in general in the, the world, right? And then you go to doing something yourself, becoming a kind of artisan. And then, then at that point, maybe you go, oh, work is difficult in and of itself. But this type of work is uh, the difficulty is also the reward. You reconcile the two and uh, you're in a better place. And okay, to conclude, because I've been talking for a long time, um, I'll say this in relation to uh, how do we live it now? Because I'm saying that this is a, I think this is a good way of thinking about how change happens in society. And even because this, uh, we're about to, we're hit New Year's Eve in a couple of days, we're thinking about New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions we can often think about in terms of pro progressives, like moving forward, making small changes in our lives that will improve our lives. But an apocalyptic type of New Year's Eve is where you, um, you simply look at the antagonisms of your life in the past year. And you don't think so much about what you're gonna change this year. You look more at the struggles that you've had, you bring them to the surface, you feel them, right? You bring them into the light of day. And if you're able to do that, you'll probably enter into the new year a slightly better person, right? And slightly, slightly healthier. So that's the difference between the progressive and the apocalypticist on New Year's Eve. Um, but this is, this is something we will never probably in our lifetime see the next iteration of this, what it looks like, or even if we get there. Uh, maybe different parts of society over time are, uh, I think, um, embracing the antagonisms. Um, I think it's happening within the sciences, within philosophy, within democracy, whatever, right? But there's lots of areas that hasn't hit. But 
the whole point of pyrotheology is that you can live this experience now in community. You can have communities of grace in which you are able to face these antagonisms and these conflicts that are within you, that are within your community and are within the wider world. You can allow them to breathe, to come into existence. And even if the world is not changing around you, that small community you're in, you are freed from this attempt to escape the antagonism. You're free from this kind of like a notion of always trying to improve, improve, improve. And you're free to see your own antagonisms and the conflicts of, say, the, the community you're in, the wider society. And that very experience uh, done within paratheological communities um, is enough to bring healing, salvation to you into the community. And enough of those communities can have a wider impact on the wider world. And that's why I do what I do, because I think that if we could set up hundreds of these communities across the country, um, that can have a real impact on people's individual lives, but it can also have an impact on the wider political life. It can show people an alternative. Because potentially the negative side of progressivism is that it needs a scapegoat. It tries to get rid of the antagonisms, it tries to see this progress. So what it does is it either puts a smiley face on oppressive systems, and when that's not working, it finds someone to blame for things not being right. Whereas apocalypticism, uh, it avoids scapegoating um, because the idea is even if there are, you know, there are real difficult people in the world and things to overcome, but um, it says, but there's no ultimate overcoming, right? There's this, there's this movement of just showing the violence of the system and that enough, that, that can provide enough transformation. And then secondly, um, what was I going to say about apocalypticism? It's different from progressivism. Um, uh, scapegoating and uh, well, I guess I guess the other thing which I that which I did say already is that it doesn't you don't patronize the other because in whenever you know where it's all going, then even if you love your enemy, you patronize them. You're like, oh, you haven't quite seen where we're going yet. But in the apocalypticism, you go like, no, I don't know where we're going either. Like we're all in the dark here. My job is is not to see the future, but to see the present. That's the real difficult thing, is how do I see the present? How do I see the underlying damages that are being done? We, how can I help us all see that? And then together, when we see that this thing is threatening us all, just like the proto-molecule in the expanse, this thing is threatening us all, then we can band together and, and create the next world, the new world. So it's like an ongoing apocalypticism that eventually, um, I guess the best society is a society that can kind of like, kind of have a natural process of doing that, you know, of bringing up the antagonisms, of looking at them, of making peace with them. Um, I'm just going to look to see if there are any questions on the live uh, video, and then we'll finish. I think there's one here uh, from Seamus. Hello, Seamus. From the north of Ireland. No way. Um, uh, Jane, uh, it's a handy to have dualisms watching from the north of Ireland and enjoy. Oh, oh, so sorry, so I'm just reading something. Sometimes it's uh, it's hard to get the the uh, the thing. So you're saying James, hi, either James from the north of Ireland or James from East Belfast. Ah, uh, yes, okay, yes, I get what you're saying now. Sorry, depending on which part you're from is what you're called. Very good. I actually, by the way, didn't know I had anyone listening from Northern Ireland. That's really great. That's fantastic. Um, it's handy to have dualisms. Watching from the north of Ireland, 
and enjoyed the analogy of the troubles in the presentation. Thank you. Appreciate it. As I say, I'm really happy that uh, someone from Northern Ireland is listening. Um, and uh, Seamus goes on to say, just one thing of interest to me was even though the peace process exists, it's built on a lot of untruths and constructive ambiguity in order to exist. That's a good point. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, Seamus. Um, it's like the, the, the big thing that I want to do uh, whenever I'm talking about examples is I don't want to paint a picture of like, oh, and, if, and, and when it's a successful thing, it's all candy floss for everybody and you know everything's going to be great. <laughs> the funny thing is whenever something works, um, it, it still doesn't mean that it's incredibly difficult. And like Northern Ireland, as you know, um, you know, has lots of difficulties and lots of problems still to address. And actually sometimes that's the problem is we can, when, we, when, we, when we theorize or fantasize a solution, we fantasize something where we're all free and we're all going to be amazing. Um, I heard somebody give the example of like, you know, if, if you've wanted to write a great book and uh, eventually you find freedom economically to be able to write a great book, you might find that you're a terrible writer. So, so you kind of got the freedom to write a book, but you're actually not a very good writer. You know, it's, this, it's not going to make you a good writer. So um, I guess I'm saying that because Northern Ireland, I partly like it as an example because it's so messy. And as you said, you know, there's ambiguity, there's untruths, there's, there's all of these difficulties built in. And probably it's too early to say if it works. I mean, my goodness, there's always the possibility, as you know, um, that there could be a reversal, a very radical reversal that could that could like really destabilize everything. So, you know, it's, it's, it's worth bearing that in mind is this, that's part of, for me, what the antagonism is. It's like, a, we're fantasizing not a world where everything's gonna be wonderful, but a world where freedom and possibility um, uh, an affirmation of life is widened. I'm just waffling now, but anyway, I'm just agreeing with you. All right, thanks so much for listening in and uh, I'll see you all next month. Bye-bye.